to everyone tuned in to the Muslim Community Radio. Good afternoon to you and welcome aboard, whether you're listening to us uh, from 92.1 FM or via live stream on 2MFM.org or perhaps via our 2MFM radio app on iOS and Android devices. I welcome you all to the show. Hosting the show this afternoon is Nadia. As always, it's a pleasure to keep you connected with the new and the most important to you. I've got a very exciting episode ahead for you. Today I'm going to be shedding light on not a very commonly known health condition, one that is invisible, overlooked, misunderstood and unconsidered. Colour blindness, the common name for colour vision deficiency, affects 1 in 12 men and 1 in 200 women worldwide. A staggering number of people are affected by this inherited condition. So what do you know about it? and how it affects those who have it. Dr. Vanessa Honson, optometrist and lecturer at the University of New South Wales, will be joining us for that discussion later on. We rely on differences in colour to know if food is ripe or properly cooked, when to stop or go at traffic lights, which is the cold or hot tap, how to navigate a map to differentiate elements of bar or pie charts, to tell one sports team from another and the list goes on. Using colour to distinguish and differentiate is a common feature in almost every aspect of everyday life. It seems such an obvious, easy and simple difference, right? But for people who are colorblind, life is a bit harder to navigate. So what's it really like to be colorblind? If you asked 100 people, you might get 100 different answers. Each person's experience is different. Despite the condition name and the common myths, colorblind people are not blind, nor do they only see in black and white. So What do they see? Well, to give us all the answers we're looking for, I'll be inviting Dr. Vanessa Honson, optometrist and lecturer at the University of New South Wales. That's up next on Keeping Up With The Current on the Muslim Community Radio.
right now on Tuam FM Muslim Community Radio, I'm being joined by Dr. Vanessa Honson, lecturer and senior staff optometrist at the School of Optometry and Vision Science within the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of New South Wales. She's here to help demystify the world of colour defective vision, also known as colour blindness. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Nadia, for asking me. My pleasure. Now, colour blindness, or more accurately, colour vision deficiency, is one of those often misunderstood health conditions. When most people think of colour blindness, they tend to assume it's a form of blindness. But the truth of the matter is, colour blindness is not a form of blindness, but a deficiency in the way you see colour. So tell us briefly, what does colour blindness entail? Okay, well that's entirely correct, Nadia. It's certainly not a form of blindness. So the term colour blindness that we know most often refer to people who are inheriting a condition which affects the way they see um, colours. And usually the cause is more from what we call the red or the green cones in your eye. So people with normal vision, they generally have three types of cone photoreceptors and the pigments are more sensitive to wavelengths in let's normally call it the blue regions, the green regions and the red regions of the visible spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it's the information from each of these receptors that give us our normal colour vision. So people who inherit what we term red-green colour blindness, uh, and let's from now on just talk, refer to it as colour deficiencies, mm. they either are missing one of those uh, cone photoreceptor groups, so that means it's absent in the area of the red or the green area, um, and with the majority of these people who are colour deficient, they might have a replacement hybrid cone. So the replacement hybrid means that it is to have two groups of area in the green but none in the red or long wavelength spectrum or the other way around. So what it means is they've got less information for the brain to use and so they perceive colours, some of the colours as being more similar to other areas. Mm, okay. So um, they have a narrower colour range. The best analogy I use I like to give to patients is to think of it as a printer. Mm -hmm. So if you have a printer, you have three colour print cartridges. If you're missing one of it, it will still print um, a photo in colour, but it's obviously going to be distorted and it's not going to be able to print as wide a range of colours, but it's certainly still using colour. So they're not seeing black and white. They see shades of sepia or um, browns and yellows and all of those type of um, variances in the brightness as well as a lot of blues and greys, um, therefore the ones with strong deficiencies and then the ones in between might see slightly different shades of that, of what we might see. Mm. So people would say it's not the inability to see different colours, but it's the inability to distinguish one colour from the other. That's, a, that's correct. So they can't necessarily distinguish difference in the shade. Mm. So it could be something close like certain reds and oranges and they don't see those tones. But even if you think along um, the ripening of fruit, so the yellow and the greens of the banana as it changes um, in ripeness, they will find it hard to distinguish or even like a tomato as it goes from that orangey or, you know, that yellowy green face to the orange to the full redness. 
um, until they're closer or maybe the light's better. So lighting also plays a large role in how they perceive colour um, and whether they can see that difference. Mm. Do you think the term colour blindness is misleading and causes quite a bit of confusion for people? It does cause a lot of confusion. It's much better to say colour weak or colour deficient. Um, colour blindness just leads you to think that they have, um, let's say, faulty vision and in terms of even their acuity. So these people still see the world as sharply as we do. And in some cases, they might use brightness differences to better affect than we do because they are relying on the brightness as well as some subtle differences in the hues or the tints. Um, and they certainly, a lot of them are quite unaware that they might have a colour deficiency because in terms of negotiating daily life, they don't see any problems. Mm. It's only when it comes to arguing with friends about colour or maybe when they're specifically tested that they might become more aware of this. Can someone be colourblind in one eye and have normal colour vision in the other? So in terms of colour deficiencies, you can get colour deficiencies due to disease, pathology or um, in the area of your eye but also in the area of your brain and in those cases I guess it's possible and you can have one eye worse than the other but in terms of the one that we're talking about um, where you're inheriting, both eyes are the same and in fact you're born with this condition because of its inheritance nature and it doesn't change through your life. So it doesn't get worse as you get older and it doesn't um, get it doesn't get better. Mm. And having this type of colour deficiency though also doesn't mean that if you get diseased through a different means, that will also impact it. But that's something that might happen to all of us as a natural state. Mm. So we know most people with colour deficiencies are born with it. But of course, someone can develop this condition later on in their life. So who would be at risk for developing this condition? Are there any life factors that may contribute to developing such a condition? So in terms of the inheritance and let's say the normal red-green that we're talking about, you can't develop it later in life. You're either born with it or you're not. Mm. So in terms of having a red um, a colour uh, deficiency through the seas that affects the red-green pathway, that's a totally different um, case that you're talking about. So you can, for example, have optic nerve disease or you can have uh, macular disease, which gives you a certain type of colour deficiency. But that's very different from the one that you're inheriting and born with through the normal pathways. What kind of signs would you need to know that this person has a colour vision deficiency? In terms of children, the best way that you know is, number one, if you are aware of someone in your family having a colour deficiency, then I guess you're more alert to recognising the signs in children. So children, usually we pick it up um, through either observations at home because they're not learning their colours as well and they make a lot of confusions that are, let's say, um, consistent. Um, or the teacher notices that they're not responding sometimes or they're drawing um, and the way they use their colours are different from what you expect. For example, they might colour the skin green instead of using a pinky or a brown colour. Um, 
But having said that, in terms of colour names, don't be quick to think that your child has a colour deficiency just because they call out colours wrong when they're young. Mm. And by young, I mean up to five or six years old because children have different ages at which they learn Mm. and colour itself is a concept rather than being an object. So it's something that is quite natural for children not to get correctly um, in terms of naming a colour. I guess it's more how they use it. That's very important to note because, you know, colour deficiency is relatively mild and it can go unnoticed. So a lot of people might have mild symptoms that they are unaware that they have a colour deficiency, especially in early years. Colour deficiency can be mistaken for a learning disability similar to dyslexia, for example. So there's a lot of confusion, especially when your children are still adapting to you know, learning routines and, you know, acquiring knowledge about different colours. I guess you'd notice a problem with your child when they're at that stage of learning their colours and that child, I guess, over time, you find that they're not going anywhere. They're still confused about the colours. That's that's so correct. So having a colour deficiency in no way impacts on the way um, a child develops cognitively. So, in other words, they don't have a learning disability. Um, I guess it's more about using different terms and encouraging the child to learn. And if you're using colour codes and they don't understand, then that's your, um, I guess, you need to find a different way instead of using a colour code to develop their understanding. But it doesn't mean that the child has any problems in terms of reading or learning in that way. Exactly. So one of the things um, that you might want to do is, for example, use dark colours on white, so it's black and white is easier to read, than, for example, green print on white paper because green Mm. print on white paper might look yellow on white and that would be hard for us to read, but it's got nothing to do with the way that they learn. Exactly, exactly. These children um, can learn and reach full potential and that's, in fact, how many, um, I guess, children or even adults go through life and if they haven't been tested they don't necessarily know they have a colour deficiency. Exactly and that's why you know one might think that a lack of colour vision would be easy to recognise but it can be quite difficult especially those who experience colour deficiency often do so from birth so they might not even know the difference. So it is quite I guess a lengthy process of determining whether that person has um, a colour deficiency. Now, do you think it's important for children to have their colour vision tested before they actually start school? Definitely. And I actually think it's important for children to have their a full eye examination before they start school. So a full eye examination will detect whether they're short-sighted, whether they're long-sighted, which might affect their learning um, and ability to concentrate, but also it will de- um, they will be tested for colour vision. And so that early age detection will just help um, the teachers to know maybe don't point to colours when they're talking or, you know, when they tell children to put things away in Uh, a blue box or a green box or whatever they might also have shapes or other or label the boxes um, and also it helps parents because they might approach things differently Um, they can always pass an object to a child and tell them what color it is and the child will pick up their cues Mm. so having this early knowledge is just so helpful 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I know this is off topic, but there are a lot of children, particularly those who are new to start school, so kindergartners, they complain of having headaches, especially during that learning environment. Could it be that they have a vision deficiency or they have... That's why it's mm. really important. So they should be text, um, examined before they start school. So this is, you're looking at the age of four, mm. um, at least, and at and a couple of years after because that growth period really can change the way that they perceive and if it's missed then they will develop um, headaches Mm. I have to say it's unusual for children to complain of headaches so Mm. if they are you've got to take notice Um, usually more or what happens is children don't like to read yeah and I find that children are very curious and they love to learn. So if they don't like to read um, and they're always putting that off, then there could be a vision problem and it is really important that they get checked first Mm. at least to find out what is happening. Exactly. But it could be correlated with, you know, a vision impairment if they are complaining of headaches. Yes. yes. Okay. So they could be... Long-sighted, which is usually the one that leads to headaches because long-sighted means that when they are looking at the reading matter for any length of time, it starts to get more blurry and mm. then they have to use their eye muscle to accommodate and concentrate more. Okay. And that concentration leads to sore, sore exactly. eyes and headaches. Exactly. So back to vision deficiency now. If you do suspect that your child has a colour vision deficiency, what should you do? What does the diagnosis process involve? Okay, the diagnosis process is very easy for young children because there's a book that the majority of optometrists will have, uh, which is the Ishihara plates, and I'm sure you've all seen it. That looks, I've often been described as the confetti test. Mm. So basically it's a mosaic of colours and there's a figure embedded in it that's a different colour from the background and children can detect that. Um, It doesn't matter whether or not they can read numbers at that age because we can always use a cotton bud and let them trace either a winding path or the number itself Mm -hmm. and we can see whether they recognise it. So obviously the younger a child is, sometimes we're going to say, look, bring them back, we suspect there is or not, but in the majority of cases, that book is very good for screening, okay? It doesn't tell you much more than that, but at least it can confirm it. Now, at this stage, in our clinic, so we run a um, colour vision clinic at the School of Optometry at UNSW, we obviously have a lot of tests that we can use, but I usually say around five or six, the test at your optometrist is sufficient, Mm. and then you can have that conversation with the teachers until they're a bit more older, and then we can conduct more tests and give a bit more information to parents. Usually, though, if the parents are worried, I don't mind that they come and Mm. they can still have that conversation. But the test itself, some of the tests will rely on a child having more focus and understanding. Fabulous. So it's very simple, very straightforward. And a parent should trust their instincts. If they think there's something wrong, then they should seek help and speak to an optometrist, speak to a health professional that uh, can direct them to the proper way of, I guess, navigating this particular condition. Yes, definitely. It all starts with a conversation. Absolutely. Um, And I think 
once the parents understand a little bit more and usually they go back to their own families if they're unaware of it and say you know mom do you remember if dad had this you know did they mix up colors but usually um the older generations might not be aware because they weren't tested so much Mm. um you know or it's just anecdotal in terms of those stories so it could very well be that um there is not an awareness within that family of anyone having a color deficiency because it's passed from the female to the next female and so it's not necessarily that they will have a color deficiency themselves So that's why it's a lot rarer in females than it is in boys or guys. Okay, that's interesting to know. (laughs) That's very, very interesting to know. A lot of people don't know that actually, who it is known to affect more, uh, men or women. What is the rate of colour deficient people in our country? Well, that's a good question. So in the Caucasian population, it's 8% of males Mm. and 0.5% of females. So that translates to 1 in 12 boys and 1 in 200 girls. Okay. So would you say that's common? I would say that's common. So mm. typically in um, a classroom, I guess you'd expect at least one. So 1 in 12 boys, you're going to expect 1 to 2 boys in the classroom mm. that would have it. Well, if you say right. it like that, then yes, it is quite common from that perspective. Now, picky eating is, I guess, common among those with colour deficiency. Because as we know, food appeals to us because of how it looks. So could colour vision deficiency be the reason that a person or a child particularly is a picky eater? It would be really good to have a reason for why a child is a picky eater, (laughs) wouldn't it? (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Certainly, I think food is less visually appealing when we look at it from a perspective of someone with a colour deficiency. Mm. But you have to understand if the child's born with this, what they see is absolutely natural with them. Exactly. They have nothing to compare it to. That's exactly right. So there's still the smell. I I honestly think that um, children go through different stages. Mm. So they will eat um, and explore. And I think if, let's say, you're cooking and they're involved with the cooking and they're involved with all the veggies, because there's always the veggies that we're talking about, (laughs) um, then they will eat it because, you know, they they had part of putting it all together. Mm. Um, but having said that, still, I th- think children go through stages where they suddenly like something or they suddenly don't. Exactly. Um, and introduce sugar too early in the diet. So it's all about, you know, it's <laughs> part of the, exactly. <laughs> Once you introduce sugar in their diet, it's game over. It's game over. That's, That's it. it. If you're going to give them a broccoli, it's not going to appeal to them. Whether it right. is the smell or the way it looks or its color, it's not going to appeal to them. That is exactly there. But, you know, I think we're, the great thing about um, Australia right now is we're embracing so many cuisines and there's so many different ways to cook it. Exactly. we've got to involve the kids. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Vanessa, many tasks that we do each day rely on us being able to separate things by their colour. So what are the kinds of challenges that people with colour deficiencies have? In terms of daily negotiation there isn't a problem however we embrace color so much that we tend to use color 
as a natural part in all our colour codes. Mm. So our colour codes themselves can present a problem. So, for example, if all the colour codes have pretty much the same brightness but they're differing in colour, that will give a problem to someone with a colour deficiency. Mm. And you can't just say it's red and green that you avoid because red is prevalent in almost a lot of shades and so is green. It's just the ratio that changes. Mm. So it can also be um, purples and blues, for example. It can also be magentas and um, cyan or teal, those blue-green colours. Um, and the red-blue colours, they can also be equally confused if you're going to use them all in the same colour code. So you might want to use, say, example, a red and a red-blue, mm. and you want it to be separate it enough so that we can see it who have normal colour vision but also those who have colour deficiencies they're less likely to confuse it or you can use a pale colour with something really saturated mm. but in terms of um, let's say occupations which rely on colour codes anything with signal lights is as a safety issue they're the occupations where um, I guess people with colour deficiencies struggle to get in Mm. So, um, defence, aviation, maritime, rail, all the ones that would use signal lights as, um, especially at speed from a distance, that's the ones where I guess um, anyone with a colour deficiency who's in high school, maybe they've got to look at thinking from a different way how they might bad work within the industry, but not necessarily um, be the one navigating the vehicle, so not the one driving the boat mm. or the plane. Um, but it, they could be doing engineering, they could be doing um, other things which still gives them that love within the industry. So a person with um, a colour deficiency cannot become a pilot, for example? Well... I won't say without a colour deficiency, so there are people with mild colour deficiencies that may still pass the requirements or the criterion that the profession sets and still can become a pilot, mm. but if they have a strong colour deficiency, they're going to be less likely, okay, mm. because they, they use the light, um, the colours of the light in the landing systems or even in the panel of the aeroplane, so in the cockpit, so the lighting codes then um, there may be redundant information but there's an argument that I guess the colour coding that used gives them a certain speed um, of recognition which helps with the reaction times mm. and this may all change in the future with more technology and I guess with training yeah. so you know in simulated conditions maybe they can train maybe they're not allowed a certain um, pathway in the beginning but maybe that could open up to them later but that's for the future mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it all depends on the way that we look on in terms of training exactly. but there's always that risk management where safety to the public and to themselves has to come first. Of course. What about the people with red green colour vision deficiency? Are they able to get a car or motorcycle licence? Are they permitted to drive on the road? when they're not able yeah. to recognise the colours of a traffic light to, of course, indicate when it's safe to drive and when they are required to stop? So in Australia, there's no restriction that prevents um, anyone with a colour deficiency from being, from being allowed to drive um, private vehicles or even commercial vehicles. 
And one of the things is because our awareness of this is much greater now, mm. then you'll notice that with the traffic lights, there's two clues for them. One is the position of the light, so reds on top, greens on the bottom. Yep. Uh, the other is that the colours that they choose for those signalling lights now are better suited for um, trying to prevent people with colour deficiencies from being confused. Mm. So there used to be a yellowy red and a yellowy green, and that would be right on their confusions um, with the amber in the middle. But right now... The red has more of a blue in it and the green is chosen to again try to be misaligned or just off their colour confusion mm. so it's easier for you to recognise. Well, that's good. That's mm. good to know so, that you're know, trying to accommodate for people with colour deficiencies. Exactly, exactly. And it is hard in every situation to be able to do that. But with that knowledge and with being able to change some of the colours, so it's still recognisable because it's hard internationally to just change a code. Exactly. Um, but also make it more suitable for people with colour deficiencies, then we can try to um, prevent them from being in a situation where it's harder for them to recognise. Exactly. We want to make sure that we're incorporating things that positively affect their responsiveness to traffic lights and other road signals and the need to adapt their driving accordingly. So it's all about, you know, I guess educating them and especially for health practitioners, you know, it's their role as well to advise drivers with a significant colour vision deficiency about how it may affect their responsiveness. Yes, that's correct. And that education is really important, especially when, um, I guess, the early ages where they're starting to learn to drive. So anyone with a colour deficiency, I try to educate them in the clinic and tell them to leave a wider space, be more alert. They haven't developed their cues yet, so they need to develop their cues. Mm. Um, for some of them, the red is seen as being darker, so it's harder to recognise. So they're the ones, especially in certain light conditions, like when the sun's shining on the car. Mm. So it's not just traffic lights, it can also be brake lights. Yes, And exactly. so if those drivers are more aware um, and try to always maintain their alertness, um, that can only be better. And that's actually good advice for everybody, but um, it's just one of those things that if they're extra alert, they learn their cues, then they'll be a much better driver on the road. That's right. All those factors play a part, I guess. It's not just one aspect. It's it's everything. It's, you know, your, I guess, alertness, your level of responsiveness as well. So all that plays a part, not just for the person who has a vision deficiency but also for those who are on the road those who are sharing the road with other users so Vanessa while there is no found cure yet for color deficiencies solutions do exist so what technologies or special engineered products have been developed to help people with color deficiencies navigate the world around them the lowest form of aid that has been developed are the tinted glasses they don't correct your color vision they will actually distort it in some cases but they will change the contrast um sometimes of red or orange objects against let's say the green or brown backgrounds Mm. because it'll make it lighter or darker but the great thing these days is that we all have a phone we're all used to apps so technology wise there's um apps that have been developed And a lot of those apps are more to transform how colours might then look to you 
um, for normal people to understand how someone with a colour deficiency can see. So that is a great thing. Mm. But there's also apps which then will point at a colour and then um, write on the app what colour it is. So those apps can also be good for someone with colour deficiency who's maybe not too sure of what that colour and wants to know what it is. They can um, download those apps and they can use their phone and point to whatever object it is and it'll tell them. It's not always 100% but it's pretty good. Mm. Depends on the light as well. Um, at least tell them that it's um, what colour it is, whether it's different or not, and give them that perspective. There's also um, software on your computers that can make the task more visible or more enhanced. Okay. So sometimes, um, I guess, you know, for example, playing a computer game. Yeah. Okay, they might use a lot of Candy Crush, uses a lot of colours. Yeah. So... There might be, and I don't know where the Candy Crush has this, but I'd be surprised if it doesn't. There might be set within the settings where you can say um, that you have a colour deficiency and you can try these different settings to make those uh, different colours more accessible. Mm, possibly. So, you know, there is a technology there and certainly if that's there for the games, then I would presume that for useful things, let's say GPS, there are settings for people with colour deficiencies to make the um, enhancements better for them that they don't have to necessarily use the same colour codes that we use. Mm, exactly. And what about teachers? What can they do to accommodate a student who has a colour deficiency? I'm going to group the teachers then into two groups, so mm. it's primary and, let's say, high school. And one of the things I love is for teachers to be more educated because they can then be inclusive um, and it's a lot of the times when they're doing things they don't necessarily mean to be exclusive it's just that they're unaware that someone exactly. might have a colour deficiency mm. and children they don't like to be different from their friends mm. so they mm. even if they start um, doing things maybe differently and they start to be aware of it they might not necessarily tell everyone around them because they appear different so I guess the first thing is if a teacher finds out, um, it's just, you know, for I, I've heard one teacher where they limited the crayons. Um, so, you know, instead of having 24 different colours, okay. they might just have six or seven colours in this particular crayon mm. tin which that child uses. And because the then that child would get to learn, for example, um, I guess red and brown is the hardest one that against um, in terms of crayons that they might confuse mm. and if the green is a different brightness from the red then they'll tend to know it better and obviously yellows and blues that they can see and black and grey is fine mm. Mm. Um, so if they limit the colours then they're less likely to make errors you can always label it um, I guess if you have a conversation with the class and let them know and talk in general um, then if that's a nice um, inclusive class and the whole class knows about that child then they become on board and they might help the child you know and so if the child then says pass me the blue one they'll just do it rather than teasing them mm. um, as I said before labelling their boxes for where they return things and just making everything um, clear in terms of creativity letting them colour any way they want okay so people children with colour deficiencies can be as creative as they like and then when, um, in terms of using, let's say, the older primary years, they're doing more graphs 
um, pie graphs yep. or bar charts, things like that in class. Then they might use patterns as well as colours. Mm. And they mm. might use a pale colour, a saturated colour, then a striped one. And that makes it really easy then for knowing which um, key is meaning to which part of the bar graph or the pie chart. Mm. And mm. same with line charts, they can do dotted, dashed and solid lines. So as you're going into um, the high school years, the main thing that comes to mind, apart from maths and geography where it's all graphical, yeah. um, chemistry and titration. So pH charts, um, pink and blue, is right on the confusions that they make. Mm. So these children uh, might then see the endpoints of titrations at a different endpoint from the rest of the class, and understanding that um, just helps a long way. So usually it won't affect them because they're in groups when they're doing science experiments, and I like to tell all um, the patients that come through my clinic is that they can use that endpoint as a way of educating everyone else so they can say okay you see the endpoint here i see the endpoint here exactly and in real world um that could lead to an outlier we want to try to find a reason whereas here they know the reason so they can always write about it include it and teach the class about how this difference might um be something that they need to investigate in real life because they don't know that that color deficiency might um change the way that they see things and the way that they perceive and sometimes it might be earlier that they detect a change if it's due to brightness that we don't detect or it may be due to other things. Exactly. So exactly. in that way. But yeah. it all comes down to education. Education is the foundation here especially because they're in a class with other students. Those students, if they're well-equipped and educated enough, they'll be able to guide and help that person with that deficiency. And that goes with all the other different types of deficiencies and disabilities, perhaps. You know, if you're educated, you'll be able to be a guide for other people. Definitely. And it carries beyond the classroom. Exactly. Because, you know... If they're used to it and they've encountered this in primary or high school, then when they encounter it at work, they know exactly how else they might be able to help the people or when they're choosing in their own jobs, when they're choosing colour codes, they'll be aware of what to do so that it's accessible for everybody. Exactly. Um, so absolutely, education is important and inclusiveness in terms of doing that so everyone's on the same page when they're understanding. Absolutely, but there are a lot of effective ways of being more accommodating for people with vision deficiencies and so a person with colour deficiency is able to lead a relatively normal life once they've made those adjustments to their daily routine and once others are familiar with their situation as well so being vocal about your condition letting people know you know what you prefer and how things can be made easier for you especially because this particular condition is not very commonly known people really don't know about it they don't know the details about it so what you provided us with today is absolutely astounding and i would like to thank you immensely vanessa uh, for the time that you gave us on the show today to explain and to elaborate on uh, color deficiencies also known as color blindness no thank you very much for asking me and for having me on your show it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you.
So there you go. Despite the condition name and the common myths, colorblind people are not blind, nor do they only see in black and white. It's a common misconception that many people have about color blindness or, as we said, color vision deficiency. Of course, people with color vision deficiency do see color, but the perception of certain colors and shades is not easily distinguishable and can be perceived significantly differently than intended. So people who are colorblind can see as clearly as other people do, but they essentially can't tell the difference between some colors or they, I suppose, see colors differently from other people. So for many of us, this is new knowledge. And as we said, a lot of us, including myself, had the perception that people who are colorblind are blind to all colors. But as we heard today, that is certainly not the case. So now that you're aware of the common misconceptions and facts associated with color blindness, you can use that knowledge to help people struggling with this condition, especially if they are unaware. Encourage them to get their eyes tested specifically for color blindness or to go for a comprehensive eye test. Remember, keeping these facts and misconceptions in mind will help people deal with their color blindness much better. I'm interested to know if any of our listeners have actually been diagnosed with this condition. I personally have never met anyone diagnosed with color vision deficiency, also known as color blindness. And as we heard, it is quite common. One in 12 men and one in 200 women are diagnosed with this condition. So I'm hoping that today's episode will help people make better informed decisions when it comes to their eye health. If you do suspect you might have a color vision defect, you should most definitely get your eyes checked as soon as you can. <music> 